Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of Indian Cup Time. We are so excited today to have Will join us from Space Tech to talk about the space and innovation. It's going to be a great discussion. Will is awesome, so you're going to learn a lot like I did when I got the chance to talk to him about this and prepping this episode. So uh, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, make sure you do that. Go to IndianCupTime.tv. You're going to get uh, an email on the weekly basis to notify you of the next video and episodes. Also, if you have any guests that you want us to have on the show, please send us an email so we can invite them. We have already guests booked until October, end of October, November. But if you think someone should be on the show, if you have an interesting topic you want to talk about, feel free to email us or, on, or contact us on LinkedIn to be able to have a, a discussion to bring you on the show. If you've not yet subscribed uh, to Assage, go check it out. We have now 7,500 government teams and 1,500 companies on Assage, increasing their velocity on average by 35x. A game changer. It changed the way I do my day-to-day -day business. So go check it out, Assage.ai. Create an account for free. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. We've released, released quite a few videos in the, last, in the last few weeks. One, of course, a deep dive on Assage. We also released how we generated our RMF package in uh, seven hours instead of the six months and 300,000 bucks that the company wanted to do it for us. So seven hours, 300 bucks of tokens with 96% accuracy. So definitely a game changer. We also have a video on RFP and how to respond to RFP for duty and offensive contractors. We have reduced our time from five days down to 32 minutes. Also a game changer. We have a video on training data and understanding the token window and how to use the bot correctly. We also have example of integration into real-time databases and data sets and API with our, all the connectors we have built with MySQL, Postgres, MongoDB, Elastic, Kafka, you name it. So being able to real-time access insights and data from your enterprise data securely with full privacy and IP in mind. And then we also have a video on how we use Assage to help us with our software development. 90% of the code of Assage itself was created by the bot. It's already a game changer again. So go check that video as well if you're in software. With that, I wanted to bring Will on the show here to talk about all this innovation happening in space. And Will is well-known emerging technology-based entrepreneur from Naples, Florida. He's a founder of over 10 companies. And the Space Tech is his latest company focused on providing research prototypes and the manufacturing of space-related assets for both the U.S. government and also the commercial sector. So we're going to be able to kind of take a deep dive and a look today at what it takes to be able to enable the innovation around the space industry, which is obviously one of the hardest industry to innovate in that space. And and it's obviously a, a big challenge, both for the government on the space force side, but also when it comes to the commercial companies supporting the agency as well. So with that, let's welcome Will. Thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate having me on. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. So much to talk about today. We have put together so many different topics, and I think it's almost you know overwhelming, but I think it's great for the, the team to be able to understand a little bit uh, what you've been able to achieve and also kind of the uh, things to pay attention to and the impediments that could slow teams down and, and what you pay attention to when you're thinking of innovation and prioritizing work. So it's going to be a great discussion. 
first, like we always do, want you to give us a quick rundown of your journey, and then we'll be able to take a deep dive on the topic. No problem. You know, my journey really begins of a story of entrepreneurship starting in my teenage years, putting rock sea walls together on the lake that I grew up on. It was based out of need, you know, and any business that's worth their salt, they have to focus on what the need of the customer is. And that really instilled into me, one, very hard work, putting rocks on, uh, you know, us pre-existing seawalls was a lot of hard work, but also got me very in tune to the different dynamics of needs. So that really began the birth of my journey into entrepreneurship and business and learning to adapt to whatever the needs are mixed with what your passions are. So that led into multiple different avenues of work, which again, led from passion mixed with need and to the healthcare industry that later opened up doors to emergent technologies. Yeah, pretty vast array of, of expertise there. So it's going to be interesting to see how you find it to, uh, to help you in this new kind of endeavor with a space industry here. First, you know, uh, we always talk about velocity on, in this show and how to remove impediments, bottlenecks, right? Embracing DevSecOps and all the good stuff to be able to compete and move at the pace of relevance. But when you take a step back and you look at how the, the DoD is doing right now when it comes to embracing innovations, what's the status? What do you think we can improve? And what do you pay attention to? Uh, anytime someone mentions DoD, it's going to come down to one word bureaucracy. I mean, it's a very large machine. You know that better than most. And so I think that the government has done a great deal of stride in identifying that they need to uh, start looking at smaller companies to expedite. And that's another reason why space tech came into an existence is filling those gaps and those needs that the Department of Defense the government needs to adapt to rapidly develop on the needs basis. Yeah. So what do you think has been the main blocker? You know, when you when you look at obviously a big bureaucracy. And you look at the space and, and, you know, we have a new space agency now. So that's, you know, was designed to enable that, that, you know, faster innovation pace. They have a, a new space acquisition team to be able to put things on contract. When you look at the bottlenecks, which ones do you feel are the, the most obvious and the most painful, particularly for startups? For startups working with DOD, you're going to be dealing a lot with legacy systems, uh, legacy systems that have been around for a very long time. And it took a lot of work to get them in, instilled. So that makes sense. You also deal with security concerns, which it's a constant double-edged sword of they overwhelmingly, the government wants to bring on private industry, but at the same time to vet all of those security concerns, it's, it's a very large, massive undertaking, as well as changing requirements. With many large projects, requirements can change, cause delays, increase costs. Well, something for a startup or a new company, um, that, that's a very large pivot to take. And especially when you're talking about one of the most expensive industries in, in our history. Right. And, and when you look at you know, the, the, all the nightmare around accreditation and authorization, do you feel like the, the software is more painful or do you feel like the, the hardware facility, you know, uh, securing off, you know, because of course you're dealing also with physical things. I don't, I don't have to worry about that. You know, I'm using a cloud and I'm, I'm very happy to, to give the baby to, to Amazon or, or Microsoft. But uh, when you look at, at your pain, I guess, which one is the, the most uh, painful? I would say it's hard to pinpoint because every circumstance is different, but globally, I would say it's a 60, 40. And 
but it's going to rapidly change quickly to the software side more than the hardware. But I would say so sixty hardware... percent on the hardware side today, forty percent on the software. And yes. also, of course, it depends, of course, on the on the innovation and how complex your software is. I would imagine that you know I've seen a lot of space companies barely do much in in software. You know, the innovation is really on the hardware side, and so that obviously alleviates some of the issues there. But do you feel like the the space industry is going to evolve more and more into a, a software defined world? Absolutely. I think that that's going to turn into 50-50 very quickly, as you're seeing with a lot of our, our warfighter planes and jets, that it's it's taking the agile approach. And as we right. saw, that it's just an, a software update. I mean, everyone's taking cue from Tesla. You can just press right. the update rather than a brand new car. And that is the approach that a lot of companies need to be looking at very carefully and adopting. Yeah, so kind of decoupling your hardware while the hardware may be stuck in time, your software can continuously innovate and bring new features and not just, you know, bug updates and degree updates. I feel like when you look at the landscape in, in the in the space industry, do you feel like there's a lot of providers or, or companies to help some of these space companies to deal with all the security, you know, the cybersecurity on the software side and also all the nightmares right to to manage a software stack you know DevSecOps and all that stuff that's that's a pretty big lift you know if you look at spacex you know, they have 200 people to manage their DevSecOps stack and, and all their software innovation teams and and software tests and stuff and i know people you know who left the tesla spacex were you know pretty up uh, pretty you know struggling they were struggling you know in the new company because they only had like 10 people you know to deal with software now and they're like oh all the the stuff that we were provided as a service as part of being in the SpaceX team, now we have to reinvent and build. And, and so there is no you know, real providers of a turnkey solution in software yet. I'd say that there isn't, and it's always a great opportunity in it and time for innovation. So you get to participate in creating that future legacy system, probably some future generation is gonna complain about. So it's, it's an exciting time. And to answer your question, we're creating it. You know, everyone right. around us in the in the space industry is creating it. As you mentioned, SpaceX, that team have had absolute privilege of getting to meet many of them and what the tasks that they've take, taken on and what they've accomplished and really trailblazing. And I heard recently, and uh, if you're on here, you can say your name. Someone posted that the space industry needs to be collectively competitive, that we have so much to take on, that we need to work together, still compete, but we have so much to share. And I'd like to see that out of the space industry. There's so much to be had that it is the new frontier. So I could see that that helping the situation, but I would say all collectively right now, everyone is focused on building their own. I think that the adoption, a lot of software companies feel that they don't know space, so they can't get involved, but as products and radiation proofing is increasing and much more reliable, it's going to it's going to be a lot more Earth-like environment for them to have a lot of these processors up in space and a lot of security systems that they can easily offer as a service to space companies. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. How you know SpaceX was kind of the first one to push the adoption non-base design, you know, hardware, also enabling the use of x86 CPUs and enabling you know open source software to be running in space and and the cost savings actually enable them to have more compute and more redundancy 
instead of spending spending a fortune on on all this specialized hardware, which also in turn you know expands the ability to deploy more kind of open source and and already ready to use software capabilities like DevSecOps and other stuff. So they're not locked into to an ecosystem that's very tight and controlled. They have more diversity of options and they can do more better, better and faster. So that was always interesting to see. So now you know when when you look at your new company, what led you to decide to do a, a space-related company? There was some homogenizing uh, moments that happened when I decided to start Space Tech. One, I was blessed to be in contact with several ex-members of DOD, specifically of Special Forces, SOCOM, and getting to listen and learn about the uh, needs of the warfighter, uh, and then see that also due to Rocket Lab, SpaceX, all ULA, Blue, all the hard work that they're putting into accessibility, I saw that this is possibly the time that what we dealt with com with computers and IBM dominating the market, it was a very expensive field to get into, that potentially this was our time of the apples to be coming about, and saw that the opportunity for a startup in the space industry but also paired with the idea of bringing in and, and starting the company with individuals from Department of Defense from Go, rather than they're the ultimate end user and, and for, especially for the warfighter. So to be able to have that insight from the beginning and having them involved in the architecture rather than we'll make this, do you think you'd like it? So having a lot of past history with starting businesses definitely encouraged me to get into the field and, 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 and get excited about it. And so far, it's been it's been incredible. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I know it's a big undertaking, and and you know, while it's it's easy to to create a, a software company, you know, going after the space industry is a whole different ballgame. You know, the way you've done it, also not raising capital. I'd love for you to share a little bit as to why you felt doing it organically and doing it in a different path that, that many take uh, was a better option for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a favorite topic of mine. And I think that everyone has a place and, you know, VCs, investment bankers, angel investors, SpaceX happily takes investment and they need that to sustain. Prior, as I mentioned, a main factor was examining the data and prior, as we all know, to get into space, you couldn't. It was only the wealthiest of countries could access space, kind of. So we were in a new threshold. And every time I see a Falcon 9 go up over and over and over again, I thought this is a time that we possibly could get in and get in and maintain the control of the company, self-fund, bootstrap. And it comes down to core principles of control and vision. That's pretty transparent. Everyone knows that if you hold and you hold control of the company, you maintain that vision. You also have your financial discipline. Any startup would tell you the same thing that it forces you to focus on the say sustainability rather than just collecting that paycheck. You have to fight to survive to get a product out that the customer wants and the freedom to experiment for a company. And I'm sad to say when I first came out, sat DC few years ago and was talking about space tech and when it was asked of who's the VC behind it, what contract. And when I said there was none, we're not going to be, we're going to be self-funding. was looked at like I had three heads. It was not a common thing. 
to be said about a space company even today. And But the obs observation of a lot of those companies that I talked to that were VC-backed have now gone away, unfortunately. And I, that's not a, a good thing, especially how small the market is and how badly it's needed. But the main thing that you'll see in a lot of these reports and companies that have fallen off or laying off is that that inability to pivot and when it's a experimental new environment like space, you have to be ready to pivot on moment's notice and you have to be ready for the consumer's needs. Uh, and so having all of those factors in play are very important to the DNA of our company to maintain the ownership. Yeah, it's also, like you said, the freedom of not having to listen to investors that are often are not entrepreneurs themselves, you know, very few truly are and, and, and they think they know better, but they often don't. And more importantly, you know, you're chasing after money, raising money instead of actual revenue and breaking even. And, and so many companies fail at, uh, you know, understanding the basics principle of being an entrepreneur, honestly. And, and it created kind of this nightmare of a market with overvaluations and, and you know, piece of, of napkin that, that turns into hundreds of millions with nothing to show for it. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting how this is going to crumble uh, sooner than, than we think. And and so just like you, you know, as age, we decided not to raise money and, and we broke even in, in three months, you know, so obviously easier for us than a space company, but still interesting. So, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, engagement that you have to go through with, with DOD, how difficult has it been to work with DOD and, and what do you think, you know, a lot of DOD leaders listening to the show, what th should they improve to streamline that process? Well, and as I mentioned, the some of the the three core principles that they have to face, which is their bureaucracy, which they they understand, they have to live with it every day, and work alongside of it and make it work. It's a very large system. They have security concerns and the constant change of requirements. Not to mention the constant change of command. So, what I'm relieved to know is that I know for a fact that they are modernizing that procurement process, increasing their transparency with maintaining the integrity of security and increasing that collaborative effort. And so you see things like SpaceWorks popping out and putting out solicitations, going out and meeting the public and the private companies and investing into technology, which you're seeing more and more on with Sibbers and for advertising for encouraging smaller companies to tackle some of these challenges. Yeah, so you, know, you mentioned the acquisition stuff thing that, that Congress gave the DOD already all the tools they need to be able to be innovative in acquisition, often due to lack of training or lack of awareness or, or just, you know, complacency. The DOD is not using the new vehicles and options given to them by Congress. Do you feel like the Space Force has been a little bit more forward-leaning when it comes to some of the awards, or do you see the traditional process of very large acquisition taking a very long time, often going to the large primes instead of you know, feeding some of the smaller engagements with startups? Well, the writing's on the wall for Space Force. They understand it. They've lived in it. And they're very excited for Space Force to excel. And so they know the agile approach. They know this is an opportunity with a new name, a new arm to expedite. And they all know space is, it's a lot of work. And so I know that, uh, I feel personally that they are, expediting things much faster at a much faster pace than prior years. Yeah. What have you seen when it comes to, you have to deal with the accreditation process with the Space Force and, and the DoD? Did you, did you see any progress on the uh, 
on the software or the hardware or the facility, you know, managing clearances, is that going better? Is that still more of the same? I, d I don't have any past history to compare it to, but my personal experience as of it so far and the individuals from the Department of Defense that are since retired and are on the team have all been, again, going back to the bureaucracy, it's a very large machine to move the gears and to get this thing rolling down the road. So I'd say all things considering, it's it's going very well. And my insight and advisors on the team say that they're, they're very happy. Obviously, we would all like faster, but sure. faster doesn't necessarily mean better. And when you're dealing with something so sensitive, I mean, this isn't the, the oceans where there's borders. This is space where it can fly overhead at any time. So it's to be taken very, very serious and very careful. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so if, if you had a, you know, one recommendation to the department, what would you tell them to think about? I think the acquisition process, I think that uh, the process of which they are doing, but to continue to expand and explore the smaller business process and looking to see what, what's out there and what can be implemented quickly. These are smaller companies that can pivot faster. And a lot of the times, and you know, they have co-contracting opportunities that are out there for primes to work with smaller companies. So I think they're beginning that process and working very hard to begin expediting some of those smaller needs. But I think that instead of looking at that co-contract, maybe co-collaborate and focus on awarding prime contracts to the smaller, smaller businesses and that that would excel quite rapidly. Yeah, the, the bulk of the money is still going to the big primes. And I remember when people used to make fun of SpaceX saying it's never going to work out. So I bet they kind of changed their mind now. So without SpaceX, we'll be using Russian rocket to send our people to the ISS. So that's right. Yeah, it's always interesting. So I guess we talked about that a little bit, but when you when you look at the, the funding aspect, right, and you look at not raising money, particularly in, in the space industry, what has been the, the downside? You know, obviously, you know, you're more focused on, on making money and, and, and prioritizing the right engagements. But, but when it comes to growth, have you felt any kind of, you know, pain not having that pot of money sitting on the side from a VC or something like that? You know, this might sound like a cream puff answer, but it's, it's the truth is that so far those pain points have ended up becoming really valuable. There's a lot of uh, rushes to certain categories and, you know, we had a very large boom two years ago in the space industry and a lot of uh, venture capital getting into the markets and a lot of those projects, a lot of the end users are finding that they're not really satisfied with the product that's being delivered. And so in those circumstances, looking back, if we had that money, would we have moved forward with the similar projects? It's quite possible. So it's been a very enjoyable process. And when we're learning that those pain points are good for us, just like as a child is getting older and learning, this is, and like our parents always told us, this is good for you. You just don't know it now. Right. Right. So I would say that now that we have meditated on that and understand, uh, you know, of course you're always gonna have the, the very cliche pain points of companies when you're self-funded, that you want to retain your talent, you want to make sure the, the vision and the integrity stays and that people don't, you know, go somewhere else because it's like, hey, I love, I love this dream, but you know, there's this nine to five down the road that looks a little bit more promising or consistent. And 
the culture and I have to, you know, give credit where credit's due. You have a lot of reels with a lot of influencers and a lot of people that actually are credible and say, look, this is how I did it. You can actually do it yourself. And so living into this information age where, uh, you know, you're one of them, you know, getting out there and saying, you know, you can do this, you can do this on your own. You can, you can embark upon it and you can actually make a career out of it. So people like Elon, people like, you know, that kind of started off with Steve Jobs of like, hey, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for this passion, but also meet the market needs and, and succeed. The, the dream is available. So I think that's where the retention for space tech has been is that we believe in this, we know it will work. And uh, so, like I said, it might sound a little bit salesy that uh, I'm saying there isn't any pain points. Of course there is, but I'd say that when you start looking at those pain points as, as progress that we're learning and we can adapt, it, it sometimes can be a good thing. Yeah, and there is a thing that, you know, I always, I'm reminded when I look at the, the DOD's budget and people always ask for more, I would argue we have too much already and we're not nimble enough and, and there's a little bit of complacency on top of, you know, a large amount of waste. And you look at smaller nations with much smaller budget, they still achieve pretty exciting outcomes. And uh, there's a point to be made where, you know, not having all that money letting, sitting around might force you to uh, be more nimble and, and waste less and be more efficient. So, like you said, you know, you don't know what's good for you until you know it. So. So obviously you could focus on, on any kind of problems with a company space is a vast array of, of problems and issues. How do you decide what to focus on? I think this is such a great question because if anyone's listening and I, I know that several people have reached out that they're interested in how do you get going in just a business and this is your business principles 101, you know, you have to have your vision alignment. You got to have a long-term goal of the team that you're working with. You have to do your market research. You have to make sure it's a product that's going to be purchased and it's what they want and cannot let a day go by that you're not reevaluating. And that's where that pivoting is very important that you need to be in a position where you can pivot and satisfy your customer's needs rather than just collect data to take data and keep going down the road of creating something just for the purpose of, well, I want to create it. I feel like I need, you know, we're taught since we're young, we have to, you know, finish our homework. We've got to finish the grade. We've got to just be completionists where with uh, it's important for the, the agile approach that's very adaptable, which can be built into the product, which is very nice. And, and that's where software is going to create a lot of resiliency and longevity and the technical assessment component of it that uh, kind of bleeds into the regular regulatory landscape. This is a very heavily regulated and I'm happy for it. Sadly, we're one of the only countries that regulate it as much as we do. And so the technology needs to match the re requirements. And then what's going on right now, we see a lot in the news, which is sustainability. So once the, those five steps have kind of processed through, then you look at that team passion and expertise. You know, do we have the authority to speak on this topic? And you know, the, this topic of, we want to tackle this project. Do we have someone on our team that can lead us and have expertise that can be trusted? It's, that's a product that can be used and also the team passion, you know, you have to balance at the end of the day, it's, do you want to wake up and do this every day? And also do you want to wake up every day and not get paid for this? And so you need to find that sweet spot in the middle. We don't want to keep doing this every day just because we have passion for it. Well, then pretty soon people around you say, that's a really cute hobby and you want to be able to deliver a product 
But then if you're not passionate about it, that's going to burn out and that's where you're not going to have longevity. So the, the purpose of space tech, uh, is to be around for a very long time to continue to deliver product in the, in, in the space atmosphere and the, uh, in the, and, and to bring on individuals with those expertise as we started from the beginning with Department of Defense, as individuals retire, they put a lot of that time and expertise into the field that they have a place that they can go and take a lot of that talent and apply it in the private sector and for the warfighter. Yeah, that's spot on. Interesting. So obviously when you when you look at all these different uh, space innovation problems, some are related to to software, some are related to AI, some are related to hardware. You can tackle a little bit of everything. How do you end up, you know, first prioritizing to, do you feel like there's more issues on the software side, you know, hardware, which one would you say for, for, you know, you know, is, is kind of ripe for innovation? I'd say easily, this kind of goes back to a previous response. So I'm going to echo some of the same, but add on it's, it's hard to get a correct matrix to this, especially in the space industry. But I, I do believe it to be around a 60-40 split, leaning on the heavy on the hardware side. However, it's going to rapidly move to, and it needs to move quickly to software and AI, where you have satellite, op- for examples, for some the software and AI, you have satellite operations. They rely on the communication, data processing, navigation, autonomous navigation, extremely important. The data processing, this can be done on the vehicle rather than on earth. Simulation software is extremely crucial. You know, it's the uh, measure twice, cut once, and especially how expensive it is to get into orbit. That's very important. And then lastly, I'd say with software, you have your ground operations, mission planning, ground station operations. So there's a lot of meat on the bone for software AI to start materializing and work to be done. Now on the uh, hardware side, we have launch vehicles, satellite design, space habitats. You know, building the rockets involves a lot of advanced materials, propulsion systems, satellite design specifically involves a blend of materials that you have a very harsh environment in space. And I promise I'm not going to say space is hard anytime beyond that moment right there, but it's, it's very extreme conditions and we have a lot of thermal variations and radiation to deal with. So, you know, in, in the space habitats that we're looking to go out and beyond, uh, these are, I'd say, some areas that are going to have a lot of focus and, and just years and years of different companies and different departments of companies and students to be researching and learning and applying to the space industry for years to come. Yeah, that's that's so, I mean, you know, some of the, the, the different aspects of space really get, get people excited. You know, there's so much to do. There's so many opportunities. At the same time, you see a lot of companies fail. When you look back, you know, you know some people, you know, maybe didn't embrace enough the uh, notion of agility and, and DevSecOps and, and security and got burned by, by not having, you know, maybe, maybe uh, baked in security or maybe better understanding of software. What would you say is kind of the biggest reason as to why recent companies are failing? I think it comes down to wanting to profit and seeing companies like SpaceX, seeing the, the, the very bloated margins and wanting to get a piece of it. I, I'm not an accountant, but you know we have speculative markets where there are some benefits for investing into these kind of markets and it's very exciting and, and there could be a very compelling pitch deck. 
So when you invest in these companies and they're very narrow in scope and there's interplay between software and hardware. So if you're just a hardware company for space, uh, it's, it's not singular. You have the software application as you see with SpaceX's long-term plan, they have six other milestones they're going to be reaching before they reach the, the most current. And it's important to have that scalability. And I see a lot of these, a lot of the failed companies in the space industry are very focused on one topic, don't have a lot of, they do not have a lot of diversity. And so when that is not yielding uh, an, a return on the investment quickly, and especially if markets get spooked, the first part of the, the first part of a portfolio gets cut as your speculative markets. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so it goes back to the funding and and the prioritization. And have you seen mistakes on the on the technical side also that's not related to to funding or where where people kind of bet on the wrong horse or or pick the wrong focus? When you're dealing with spacecraft and they have to go into orbit. It's not as easy as an airplane that we can walk out to the plane, we can land it. This is an environment that it's very speculative, as, as some might say, it's even in the experimental and many of the categories and what percent very high. So I wouldn't say that I could pinpoint where a lot of the failure is because to even get into orbit uh, and, and to put something into orbit is such a challenge and to then evaluate your product so from an engineering standpoint, once that vehicle is deployed in orbit, that's a success and a feat within itself. However, to the pocketbooks and what is, is, that, is that product delivering? Is it supplying the need for the customer? And is it having a return? Because you could supply the best product in the world, but if it doesn't meet the, the needs of your overhead, the company's not going to be around that long. And, and I think too, the interplay between, you know, the example of like a satellite camera might capture an image and process that data, but the hardware defines on say like a Rover, the software determines the actions and responses. So the proportions and challenges are, are very similar. And when you have companies maybe segregated in one area or another, and they're not harmonious, uh, a great example is Rocket Lab focusing on then having satellites, not just being a delivery system with rockets to have a larger portfolio is very crucial, I believe, for a space company. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many dependencies that you don't control and you never know what's going to happen if you don't understand the, the food chain. I always remember an engagement I had with uh, at SpaceX. I, I, many times I brought the leadership of the Pentagon and, and a lot of people at, at SpaceX to show them you know, how industry is moving. And, and I always argue and joke that you know, if you send too many of the Pentagon leaders SpaceX for too long, their head is going to implode because they couldn't take the velocity. But joke aside, you know, we, we met this, this, this person from, from SpaceX that had started maybe three weeks before the meeting at SpaceX and he came from Lockheed, but I'm sure it would have been the same with many other companies. And he said, oh, you know, I spent 27 years at Lockheed and my software never made it to space. And here in three weeks, my software is already in space. And so that was that was a pretty mind-boggling moment, right? Because it's I mean, it's, it's just completely insane. I mean, you know, 27 years. I don't even know how you remain excited if you're building something that actually never makes it somewhere. It's almost like working in a vacuum, a self-sustained vacuum. That's pretty sad, you know. I, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't even last six months. So I don't know how they did it, but I wouldn't last 27 years. 
it was pretty excited though to to see a software in three weeks in space so that's that's pretty interesting uh, so now you know we could talk about some of the issues we're facing right obviously space had had a lot of incidents and different things happened and of debris from launches and so on uh, you told me that 96 percent of the debris are actually quite small i believe uh i think it's an inch you know pretty much wide so so how do you how do you clean that up and is that going to become an issue if we don't yeah it's already an issue and i, I like others hearing it about it in the news and reports and but when you start talking to the field experts and i'm not sure the exact percent I, I know it's very high and it's very troublesome the fact of the sls for example the public thought that there was just a lot of engineering issues well the fact of the matter is they were waiting for the space debris belt to be moving so there was an opening i mean that's that's a very bad thing to have for especially when we're trying to get spacecraft up into orbit and uh, so again focusing on expertise and individuals on our team mixed with a need and so one of the areas that space tech is fo focusing on is a satellite that will focus on that space debris removal and it poses a lot of challenges because that's moving at a very high velocity and it's also very small it's not like the movie gravity or a lot of how movies portray it these giant chunks of metal and ripping through you know different vehicles and creating more i mean that that definitely can happen and it poses a threat so since a lot of these are smaller you have to create ways that are nudgeable that you can i'll put it this way so when you want to go after all these small tiny pieces and anytime you disrupt something in orbit and you are the one responsible for moving it where that piece goes is now you'd have to assume is somewhat responsible on the person that moved or the the company or the vehicle so you have to be very tactful in that approach one of the methods that we're developing, which is it's, it's still in its experimental, is laser. Uh, basically, a laser will push the small debris, and it actually starts with uh, tracking. So we would go through and track, which a lot of companies are focusing on right now, and I think that's great. It's a very large collaborative effort, and start labeling all these pieces of debris. And then when you target this piece of debris, and as it passes by and it, it is pinged by the laser, it just pushes it further and further, and it it's not like the movies again, this isn't like a, a steady beam, it's multiple rapid pulses as it passes by, and this will slowly deorbit into Earth's atmosphere safely. And there's a lot of different things in her wheelhouse, such as ele electromagnetic nets, tethers, collectors, uh, there's even uh, you know, write-ups for satellites with tentacles. And I think the, the bigger piece too is prevention. I'd like to see that there is, and they're, they're moving towards that, is, there's, time frame that they're not allowed to not go without some deorbiting plans but prevention on all of our spacecraft is is going to be paramount and being excited to write that into our our spacecraft curriculum as far as the prevention to not be a participating member of this yeah no that's so interesting you know someone was asking actually on the chat here if the space debris is large enough to cast a shadow on earth is there is there anything that will be even close to to creating issues like that not to my knowledge i think that obviously you can <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean even could... exactly right yeah good question but, so i guess it's really the the volume right that that's creating issue and 
and of course the fact that you know they can hit some other uh, you know flying object and and then of course that could compound it to into extreme reactions we've seen recently right some launches fell and debris also fall back to earth right so your la laser concept would would help you know effectively get that done in in a controlled more or less i guess controlled fashion yes it's it's a very exciting process and a lot more control you know when you're dealing uh with some kinetic options that you are moving uh, a device to device and also at that velocity it's it's very tricky it's not easy and a lot of things can go wrong where the laser it's a lot more controlled and it's very observable and you as i said it, it's pinging the the usually a piece of silica flying by you have a lot of different options when you have that recording of the data of you can you don't have just one go at it you potentially have several and you can optimize your performance yeah so some people always think of uh you know space debris as something we're going to collect with a with a some type of arm or, or some type of you know net to capture the stuff but but we don't always realize the speed and the velocity of that stuff and it's it's pretty pretty incredible and i know there's some companies that are have that in their portfolio they're working very hard on it and nick you and i both know that it's it's obtainable at some point it's just the challenges as you mentioned the velocity it's very very hard so hats off to the groups that are are taking that challenge on right i think it's definitely great to have options but i, I do see it as a laser option as not only a first step for this use case but i also see it as something that could be useful for other use cases as well so uh, you're also working on a pretty innovative ISL satellite. Can you first explain what ISL means for the audience that, that may not know? And then, you know, what's different with your ISL satellite that others don't already do? Yeah, so the, it's an, the ISR stands for Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance Satellite. <laughs> so if you ever get that on, you know, Jeopardy, you'll get the right answer. So what uh, our outline for our ISR is, which is always the pie in the sky with ISR, is enable, allowing for that replacement of fixed wing. It's a very expensive application and very limited. While it's incredible and those planes are just fantastic, but looking for that higher resolution resolution that can replace that fixed wing. So we are having higher resolution options, hyperspectral imaging. Uh, AI-driven analytics within the satellite, stealth capabilities is extremely important. Enhance encryption, and you know a thing or two about that. Agile, agile maneuverability, as I said, all of our spacecraft are going to be joining the trend as far as uh, focusing on agile, being able to update equipped with advanced propulsion and have the capability to change orbit rapidly. And then lastly, the extended span of life through power management, solar panels, uh, that would significantly extend these satellites instead of burning up in orbit after just a handful of years. And that, 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 that's so so interesting. So I guess, you know, when, when you compare, you know, with, with what others are doing, can, can you maybe share what some of the other companies or, or, or technology are, are doing that's different in a way? And I know some of the stuff is classified, so we have to be careful here, but, you know, can you explain some of the, the key differentiator yeah, the, the main key and the vast majority, and 
it's a very small space world. So it's not to step on any toes. And I look up to, in many ways, a lot of people that work a lot at these companies that they're dealing with very low Earth orbit imagery. You know, a lot of the images that we get from Google Maps, or if you're wanting to look up how much your neighbor's house is on Zillow, a lot of that satellite imagery is from that very low Earth orbit satellites. And the satellites tend to be very small. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to say a percent that I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but it's a very large percent of those satellites burn up before even getting into orbit. So the success rate is very low and the optimization on, the, on those small, smaller sats and the resolution is, it's not as optimal as, as it could be. So what we chose to do is a little bit larger sats. So, you know, we're, we have the capabilities to be able to do from microsats, cubesats to small sats, very large sats. So it's, again, it's really focusing on what the need is, not necessarily where their pain points or failures. I could see the struggles if that were our company and that we had to deal with those optics and that resolution. So why we focus on for ISR specifically on that smaller sat, small sat to, to large sat for uh, development. And of course, anything in any field is always going to look for smaller, smaller, smaller. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. What do you think is going to be, I mean, do, do you think we're going to be able to keep evolving this to, to be more and more precise? And what's next after that? I guess once you're, you're as close as you can be, what, what other kind of innovations, you know, maybe the kind of, you know, uh, infrared and, and kind of different kind of vision options. What else is there to innovate in that space? Well, you know, as I mentioned, for being hyperspectral. So, you know, hyperspectral is beyond the visible light. So it can just employ imagery and capture over a vast electromagnetic spectrum. This would provide insights and materials and properties in, in the environmental spectrum. So these conditions for our weather and the naked eye that we couldn't see, this is going to be extremely valuable just from an environmental standpoint and from a defense standpoint and ultimately for, you know, the us here on earth, uh, the more data that we have, the better. Yeah. Um, do you see also a lot of foreign nations, you know, involved in that? That kind of one of the top, I believe it is one of the top, uh, top, you know, focus for, for many nations. So, so when you think of what problems to pick, I guess my question is, do you always decide to, uh, to go after something that's the most, you know, addressed or the most in demand? but also as the most competition, or do you try to find niche markets that are completely untapped? I think we, we look for the holes and that's a great question. So we look for the holes and since the inception of the company was, was founded primarily for the warfighter and for the Department of Defense and beyond, you know, for the consumer, for civilian applications, historically those follow suit. What usually starts in the Department of Defense ends up in civilian hands that we find that hole in the, in the defense needs and we, we target it and we do it really well. And, um, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that makes sense. So let's see now when it comes to, uh, your turbine. So you have another project that's also very interesting. Uh, that's your, your turbine concept. And that's not, I guess, directly space related, although, although I'm sure there's applications there, but that applies, that's beyond, I guess, that's just space. But uh, what are your thoughts? And, and tell us a little bit about the concept and why, why it's unique. 
Yes. So it's out of a company named Gulfstream Energy and the needs, anyone in renewables will tell you that Tesla was onto something when you put a turbine into Niagara Falls. It's a lot of power. It's endless. And England prays the Gulfstream doesn't turn off at any point soon that we have readily available energy in an area that's in the, in the ocean or in the waters that otherwise you couldn't have any power source. So for example, in space tech, it works in an ecosystem. So as I mentioned, as far as a portfolio and having options that fan out for a company, an underwater turbine or a water-based turbine, renewable energy options are extremely important to diversify the portfolio. So for example, having a sub-detection sending out electromagnetic fields to have basically listeners under the water, you have an option for satellite communications for a power source that's out in the water. Uh, you know, while they don't exactly have the most stealthy signatures in the world, but it is, again, it's allowing for a power source that otherwise wouldn't have been there before or can allow power to be in a location uh, that you can't bring energy to. Yeah. So if, if you have to give a couple of concrete examples on the short term, what, what are you focused on? As far as the turbine? Yeah. The, on the short term is, to, uh, is, is for having underwater detection as well as having grid protection, resiliency for energy. It's, that's a lot of power moving through our waterways all throughout the, the nation and the Gulf Stream. And so offering that assistance to the grid and having support systems for any kind of failure points is extremely crucial. As, as I said, and we've echoed in this conversation that it's a mixture between the need and the passion, and it doesn't take more than a couple individuals from the Department of Defense that understand the need of resiliency and redundancy for power backups. Yeah, makes sense. Very cool. So, you know, you're now thinking of growth and, and you know, there's two ways of growing. You can buy a companies or IP or, you know, people or you can grow organically and you're thinking now of M&A acquisition now. So why and, and you know, what drove you to, to think of that? Yeah, we, we seem to be uh, very, it's, a, it's not normal, I would say, for a, a space company startup to not be VC backed. It's definitely, as you said, it's not normal also for a startup to also start thinking of mergers, acquisitions, but it has a lot to do with scale. And I would say the, the route that uh, you speak on quite frequently as far as, as you mentioned with SpaceX, those examples get things out the door quickly and we need to move very quickly. So company that has a lot of talent that our company has, if you, you don't necessarily want to take everything on and you don't, you know, you don't want to be the masters of everything and, and delivering nothing. So what we do is we work with companies, for example, looking into right now we're in the process of discussion with a solar panel company, which obviously makes perfect sense for a satellite company. As I mentioned, Gulfstream Energy and focusing in renewables and power sources in areas that you can't necessarily reach and the maneuverability that you have with satellites is important. AI, uh, cybersecurity. So each one of these companies, while it's all under the same umbrella, what can happen is that talent acquisition the competitive landscape, IP, the synergies of that company can stay within that company. It doesn't get 
lost in the noise and can stay on the frequency. Yet when we can have that hub and spoke model that, as I gave an example of a turbine working within a satellite or within operations with the Department of Defense, if needed, that's a plug and play for the company and for applications that ultimately can just have longevity for the company's uh, futures. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so how do you go after, you know, picking the right fit? What do you think about in terms of criteria to, because, you know, we see a lot of M&A acquisitions that go pretty wrong and, and people end up leaving and you know, people end up buying some IP and, and the, the culture is not a fit. So how do you see that that integration goes successfully? So really, I think it comes down to, you know, it's kind of a Rockefeller line, the, the friend in business. And if you're, you start with that friendship and you court that friendship and, and you have those same ideals and those, those same principles. And if you stand on those together and you, I don't know if there's really a right time or amount of time that you should take, but you go through that process of making a friend and in, in, in that business, they align also with space tech's vision and principles, you know, understanding of what our focus is and that meshes well long enough. So it's almost like there's a, a trial period. And then once that's crossed that threshold, then it's, well, we've got a job to do and we, we actually can whiteboard. And I'll tell you, people from Department of Defense know how to whiteboard and we are all trained in that and that execution. So to be able to vet those assets out for the company uh, and confirm them and be able to build a plan together. But I'd say the most important is the identity of the company still maintains. They continue on with their journey. They're just being assisted and they're being, uh, they're collaborating. So as you mentioned, that, that can cause a lot of issues and a way to prevent that issue is I think some separation that it's a, it's a partnership rather than merger. The company has its own integrity, its own brand, and it moves forward with its missions, regardless of any of the other companies of the parent company. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's obviously, you know, all nightmare and, uh, you know, a lot of things that come into play to, to do this successfully. Uh, I've seen it go both ways, more likely bad than good, but it's also been a massive enabler for companies, particularly the big guys, right? Buying the smaller guys to be able to innovate. Uh, that's interesting. So I guess moving forward on the, you know, on China a little bit and, and looking at some of that competition, you know, they definitely are not complacent. They, they want to get stuff done. They, they understand the importance of space. It's not just a gimmick. So when you look at it, what concerns you about China and, and when you look at their velocity and urgency, are they, are they really moving faster than us? Are they just keeping up? Are they catching up? What, what's the status of, of China, I guess? I think the, the status is that they're clearly very aggressive and, you know, you have the Belt Road Initiative, which I think possibly caught a lot of people off guard in the United States and in the, in the world. You have a very aggressive approach. I, I believe that I was told some information about there was some movement in Afghanistan uh, with China. So these are, they're making a, a move uh, globally, very quickly, very advanced. And, you know, they have massive military expansion, South China Sea, they're making a lot of claims, the diplomatic approach, their wolf warrior, self-proclaimed wolf warrior diplomacy. So it's, it's a very assertive approach and their trade practices and, and intellectual property, uh, very bullish and, and very aggressive. 
and I think it's to be taken of the utmost concern. Yeah, and so when you look at the velocity and, and the urgency, what do you think they're doing different? Is it is it just because they can just mandate people to do stuff, and no one you know push back or what? what? But they're stealing a lot of the SIP, you know, through through cyber offense. What what do you think they're doing different? I think that's what you have with a, a communist country. You know, you have what's good for the country and everybody needs to participate. So there's pros and, and minuses. And then definitely into their favor, they impose their will as far as this is the, the nation's mission and this is what we're going to get done. And there's really no objection. You know, this is right. the path we're going. And so when you say the path is the initiatives of investing into other countries, other ports, airports, infrastructure. And, you know, they've also invested heavily into renewables, even though it, they, from what I understand, they're one of the largest emitters of, of greenhouse gases in every department they focus. Now we are seeing in the news and they're even self-reporting, which even appears to be contaminated data. That's all kind of coming to a head recently. So it's going to be very interesting as their markets and a lot of their enterprises seem to be claiming bankruptcy and, and failing. So uh, I think that that information control is very crucial and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. However, the intent and the, the forward focus of what the country's plans are, they have no intention of stopping, regardless of what the markets say. Yeah, one thing I would say is it's not always about what's good for the nation. It's often what's good good for the party, but that's okay. One one little caveat there. So okay, so so what's next, and what's the next big thing for you guys? What's next is you know continuing to uh, deliver our product to the, the Department of Defense and continue to grow. As I want to touch on, and you brought up a very good point with mergers, acquisitions, and and the troubles of that. And that's a very common playbook with a venture capital group to go in and, and purchase a company and. The, the culture falls apart. I think the way that we are going to be, that we are going to be successful is this, this is an founder to founder, owner to owner. And when we build those relationships, what happens with a merger acquisition typically is the cash comes in and the cash does the talking. Where in this situation, it's the principle, it's the vision and the people that brought that company into fruition talking to the other groups. So I see the, the next big thing too is that you're going to see a lot of these companies as put out press releases of the companies that have joined with us that we're all linking hands and we're all participating in the, and we we can create a lot of benefit for the warfighter for the department of defense assisting in those holes much instead of sitting around and waiting for for the the answer to evolve and to come up and out of a a boardroom that we come with that ready ready to go plug and play for all of those uh, requirements. So I see that being a very big uh, development for space tech being housed here in Southwest Florida, bringing manufacturing and jobs, jobs for, as we mentioned, the, the turbine. The turbine is developed to be made modular, be rapidly deployed and can be made on site. A lot of these turbines and a lot of the reasons that this isn't being put out is these cables that are being used underwater. It's this is a monopoly that holds on these cables. So bringing these cables and getting plan in place to bring to the governor or bring to other states of these these need to be made and manufactured for the United States. So it's it's very exciting to have a 
all these diverse, diversified portfolios and projects to bring about and, and for the country's needs and for, uh, like I said, ultimately the warfighter. No doubt, no doubt. I, I got to ask you that question. And a couple of people actually asking questions, so I'm going to show that as well in a second. But uh, how do you see AI change, change maybe space and, and then change the world? Well, I think that we're poised for a couple of significant breakthroughs. And I think that what we're seeing just in with healthcare and that we're, we're getting a lot of AI, AI diagnostics developments. And I think the technologies are going to just rapidly shift over from, I said, that 60-40 split to by vast majority. I mean, this AI is going to be telling us how to change the hardware for us so it's most optimal that it exists with. So I, I see it dominating in a very large way, much more than I believe what the average citizen realizes. It's going to be in, it's already in every aspect and it's going to continue to grow. And I think that it gets a bad rap as far as a good quote that's going around, it's trending. It's not the AI is going to take over. It's the individuals that are wielding AI that are going to be able to take over. And one, one pinpoint that comes up a lot is, say, with autonomous shipping, that shipping is, is one of the largest industries and employers. Well, what would happen to all these truck drivers and ship drivers and if all this is autonomous? Well, you look back historically, past behavior predicts the future, right? So whenever we have like a large industrial shift, and interestingly enough, one of the larger ones that are somewhat unknown and seem kind of silly, but the dishwasher and the, and the washing machine were very pivotal in, if you've ever had to wash your hands by wash your wash your hands, <laughs> wash your clothes by hands, it takes a very long time. So it, you know, sounds silly but what is what could that truck driver have been doing with his time and innovating and creating bringing bringing to the world rather than being focused on, on that one particular job so it's not doom and gloom i think it's going to move very rapidly it already is and i'm i'm actually very excited to see being a part of this technology uh revolution that's happening all around us yeah no doubt so um I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, so I'm going to say Mr. Gupta had a great question here. You know, is he, he was mentioning the fact that you know technology requirements are all different between government and private sector. But what's your opinion on space being the next AI? Well, I'll 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 start with his his the first part of his question: comparisons between government and private sector. Uh, I'd say that it's just, it's almost like within healthcare that it's a baseline. It's always a good rule of thumb to start with a requirement that the government would, would have of you. And then you build your, your, your systems around that. So it just is an easier approach, I would say, to, to follow the government requirements. And that way you don't ever have to work backwards from what you were doing in the private sector. And space being the next AI, well, I, 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 I see them working in tandem. I mean, the, the question, is this the, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that, but yeah, it's uh, not necessarily. I, mean, I guess space is going to open a whole new set of options. I guess that's what it means, right? It's, it's going to be a whole, you know, set of opportunities, just like AI is opening the door to a lot of new options. I think it might be the same, you know. Yeah. In that, in that, in that context, it's, yes, it is. It's, well, what works on earth doesn't work in space. And what works in space doesn't necessarily work on Earth. So as we're looking to having a lot of these proving grounds, testing 
getting these materials in space quicker, having more launches, which I can't encourage governments enough to safely to get more things sustainably in orbit or get exploring a lot more in our solar system that we're going to have just an untold amount of, of, of findings and, and new discoveries. It's just the beginning. We, we're just scratching the maybe 1% of half a percent of what the futures are hold as far as next things that are going to be going through in, in space. Yeah, no doubt. So Kevin was asking, does space tech has any use case that would leverage AI machine learning? If yes, can you give an example use case? Yes. Going back to the, uh, the uh, optic sats, you know, so use case, great example. This wasn't ours, but this was at one point they were looking at fuel leakage within shipping containers and with ships and just the measuring of the imagery through machine learning and AI of the shadow of the ship. They were actually able to predict the correct amount of fuel that was being lost on these ships and being able to save these shipping companies, which ultimately hit the pocketbook of the consumer, millions and millions of dollars. AI for optics and the, and the ISR satellite are crucial. And you know the self-regulatory of the systems, as I mentioned with Agile and these spacecraft, it's gonna be throughout the, the, the spacecraft and, and basically almost a healthcare system that can, uh, you, you can get a health report back to ground comms and you can see what the health of the satellite. So it's, it's in every aspect and of the satellites, but those are a couple use cases. Yeah, very cool. So Michael was asking uh, what you think of uh, low Earth orbit uh, space tourism. Well, uh, it's it's interesting, and again, there's some really amazing, incredible, noble people that are working on those projects, and I think it's fascinating. And uh, you know, there's great companies, even like uh, their Space Perspective, and that are more just going up in high weather balloons. You have Blue. With their launches uh, in the New Shepard, it's but as far as in Leo and what that could bring, I think it's comes with a lot of challenges, and it's not something that space tech is specifically focused on, so I can't speak to it. But uh, the plans that I see in place for this, it's it's very intriguing, and hats off to the people that take on that challenge. I think it's very fascinating, and if something in the future could be hold off where it's it's safe and reliable and repeatable, I think that's just incredible. I mean, how amazing would that be to have that kind of tourism and and be able to experience for the public? Because the more in the space industry, we, we focus so much on the rockets because that's what we see. And we don't see the satellites. Well, you can see Starlink now, but we don't see these rockets. We don't see anything beyond the rockets, so it's a lot of focus. So if you bring the... Uh, the people up to space, and I think that you would inspire a lot more. And so I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, but on the wrong horse with Virgin Galactic, I forgot I was probably 15 years ago. I mean, the, the amount of money I spent and, and how much I would have had now with interest, I would I would have paid my own rocket to go to freaking space now. So I should have, <laughs> I don't know, I'm on the wrong horse. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully we, I end up going one day. Some people are afraid of it, but... I don't want to be the first. I don't want to be the last, you know. I probably want to be in the top, top, you know, top 100, whatever. So, anyways. All right. So, you know, last question for you before we, we let you go and thank you. Uh, what, what keeps you up at night? 
it's knowing what has to get done and that will keep any entrepreneur up but it the beautiful part is it's a labor of love so the knowing what needs to get done what's expected what's what's around the corner for demands for the department of defense and thinking of that warfighter is is enough to keep you well not sleeping actually <laughs> and keep working but that's i would say the excitement of this position the blessing to be able to be in this position and you know friends family and coworkers all supporting myself and all all of each other that's enough motivation just to see this through and to as i said earlier to to cement this being a legacy company the a place where future individuals and in science, the Department of Defense can hang their hat and take a lot of their talents and apply it to futures. It's so understanding that that's where we're headed. Uh, that'll keep someone up at night, but thankfully I, I work hard enough. I get a good night's sleep. <laughs> that's right. And I would we like to see really question. quick, Nick, the, you know, I, I do want to make a, a non-paid plug that SSAGE has been incredible. We use it at Space Tech and our CTO is in love with it. And so anybody listening in, I can't encourage you enough to check it out, check out SSAGE or reach out to Nick. It's incredible. And thank you too for one, all you did for the military and continue to do now in the from the private sector and for the Department of Defense. And I highly encourage anyone if they haven't yet, please definitely check out SSAGE. It's fantastic. I appreciate it. Wasn't even paid, as you said. So <laughs> love it. I'll send you my PayPal. Uh, <laughs> so we got one last question from from Ari here, but we'll let you go. What is the probability that the current U.S. launch locations will become attainable as the air and the oceans get hotter? I will say zero, but I'll let you answer on your side. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna echo what you just said, Nick. Yeah, zero. Yeah, I mean, if we cared about the how hot it got, we would probably not go closer to equator, right? So so it's you know faster launches, but. You know, you would go to Alaska if you cared, but we don't. So, you know, I don't think temperature, it would have to be pretty drastic. I think humans will be gone before we, we start carrying the launches. I don't know. but uh, Very but good question, though. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think there's going to be other problems that will come with that before <laughs> we, we care about launches. I think it's going to be, <laughs> the question is going to, going to be able to live there and be okay without AC 24-7. So, mm -hmm. uh, all right. So. Wanted to thank you, first of all, for the time, you know, countless great comments. So people really loved it. I'm going to give you, as always, a chance to to give your parting words and let people know where to find you, you know, what, how to reach out to you and the company and uh, wanted to thank you again for the time. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. This is an amazing platform and watch all the shows and keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. And Parting words, you can look up our website, space-tech.us. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn anytime. Feel free to reach out. We're always looking for, as we mentioned, collaboration is very key in such a very difficult market. And uh, thank you all for listening. All right, with that, thanks, everybody. You stay safe, and let's make sure we keep up the good work to, have a, to make sure our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China 20 years from now. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you.